podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. You're listening to Uncovered with Barat Sundarason and Jared Kimber on the 99.94 Network. The man with the magic photos that changed the test match. Unfortunately, he just got sick just before we started recording. So he's hoping that we'll be able to uh, do something uh, tomorrow. So we, we'll come back if he's available. But uh, apologize for that. He was uh, all there, all ready to go and didn't quite make it. But let's go on anyway. Obviously, I've I've made a video and um, done plenty of stuff about the India-Australia win already. If you want to ask more uh, questions about it, uh, feel free. Later in the week, I'm covering New Zealand, England, although I've done almost no research. Uh, when's that game start? I should probably start my research very soon. Uh, but if if I do get a chance, I certainly will. But uh, come on, uh, if, if you have any questions about that series in general, uh, feel free to ask them again in uh, the comments. Uh, we're here on YouTube. But if you do have anything for Barra, you know, save it until uh, he's actually on the show with me, which hopefully is going to be. Uh, in about 18 hours' time or so. Um, so we'll try and get it. He's in India, of course. So we'll try and get it into a better time zone uh, for you all as well. But I thought it was a very predictable game. Uh, I think Australia probably batted worse in both innings uh, than I thought they were going to. I thought they'd lose anyway, but I still think that they should have given themselves a slightly better chance. Um, as far as India goes, you've got to credit well, Jadeja, but probably more importantly, Akshar, I thought that was an absolutely brilliant innings from him, uh, especially when you go through the data and you realize that it's, it's not his main strength going up against off-spinners. Some things happened in his favor, of course. The the pitch evened out a little bit while he was batting. Slowed down, maybe. Not even out isn't probably the wrong term. But I think that's what um, Ashwin was saying, you know, that it just got a little bit sl- more sluggish, which helped. And, of course, on top of that, you know, uh, the Australian off-spinners were tied because they only had the four bowlers in that game. And Boland and Cummins weren't bowled particularly that much. And uh, Rohit's uh, innings is what set India up to at least have a chance. But at 240 for seven, still a very, very big chance at that stage that that, uh, that Australia was going to get themselves back in. And I thought anything under, well, I suppose anything under 270, 280, which is still a bit of a pull considering the batters at the crease. But uh, had they got to that kind of a total, it would have been interesting to see what Australia had done. Of course, by that, by the time they actually got back out there, they were emotionally ruined as much as anything else. And I don't think anyone who saw that last innings was thinking that that pitch should you should be bowled out for less than 100 on. So I thought there were, there were some really fascinating things. We covered it quite uh, full on. on uh, so if, if, you, if you're listening to the podcast and you, and you want to go back and have a look, there's certainly quite a lot... Um, uh, that we've written about on our Substack and also on the U- YouTube lives that we do at the end of each day on the on the mood boards. Uh, myself and Cheyenne certainly threw ourselves into that one. Next test is going to be interesting because I'm going to be covering uh, well uh, England, New Zealand, and India, Australia will be happening pretty much. What's about three or four hours difference in time zone? I actually haven't worked that out yet. I haven't even worked out how I'm going to get into the Talksport Studios to record yet. So it, I think that's going to be a really interesting one going ahead and how all those things play out. But there's going to be a gr- uh, great amount of questions. So I'll let you guys all uh, line up your questions for a- anything on India, Australia, or anything on New Zealand, um, England. And what I'll do is I'll go ahead to the Women's World Cup. So I'm trying to think how many games I've seen so far. I must have seen about five games. The first one um, uh, of any note, I suppose, was the Australia-New Zealand game. I thought at times Australia, I'm trying to put this in the right way, but I thought at times they could have made more from that innings, which probably says a lot being how much I ended up winning that game. But I was watching the bat and thinking, this isn't them fully actualized yet. You know, they turned through wickets a little bit more in the middle than perhaps they would have wanted to. Um, and from the setup that they had, um, I thought they they still could have scored another 15 or 20 runs. That kind of tells you how great they are as a team, though, because they still got a very, very big total. But I, I was thinking that they were going to get the sort of total that New Zealand wouldn't be able to go. Uh, New Zealand's batting... Uh, very disappointing in that game. I thought they were, they, I, I don't, I wouldn't have said that they were a great chance of winning coming in. I haven't looked at the odds, actually. I'll look those up in the, in the ad break. But I haven't, I haven't looked at the odds for, um, for where New Zealand were or are now. Um, but watching them, I was like, you know, what, what is the chance of, uh, of this team actually getting anywhere particularly close? 
I certainly didn't see it uh, from the way that they were playing in that situation. It comes up with men on odds checker, even when I put up the women. So annoying. <laughs> uh, but just have a look. So obviously Australia are raging hot favourites. England are seven to two. We'll get to them in a moment because I have some thoughts on them as well. Uh, India are seven to two as well, and New Zealand are twenty-seven to one. So they would have been shorter before that game, is my guess. Um, everyone else is South Africa's twenty-seven to one, Sri Lanka sixty-seven to one. We'll certainly talk about them. Um, and then you've got Bangladesh at one seventy-two, and everyone else obviously completely out of it. But watching New Zealand, I think I agree with those odds. Uh, I think in the one-day World Cup. I think South Africa was around 12 or 14 to 1 for a good period of time. And and obviously beating Australia was going to be the trickiest part of that. But I did think that getting themselves into the final and having a good chance at that, looking at their team and the way they were playing, I think I thought was fair enough. Having watched South Africa and New Zealand in the T20 tournament, not sure I completely feel that about either of those teams at the moment. But yeah, I wasn't I wasn't overwhelmed uh with uh with love for the new zealand team so it'd be interesting to see how they um continue against the tougher teams um at this stage but certainly australia what are they there four to nine <laughs> you can basically not bet on them um and those odds might be long if we're being honest sri lanka is the most interesting team i've seen so far uh, they played in the opening game which was a, was a cracking start to a world cup really a really really good game i suppose the biggest problem from the icc would have been uh you know, we want the home team to win, uh, and they did not. So from that perspective, um, I suppose it was a little bit annoying. But from ev- every everything else, uh, you know, I thought it was a really good game. It kept me interested all the way through, as in there were times when I thought South Africa was a long way ahead. Then there were times where I thought Sri Lanka was going to kick on, South Africa would fight back, and it kept playing out like that. Probably didn't end up quite as close as as it looked like it was going to. From a South African point of view, and look, I'm not the world's expert on women's cricket, but I've certainly spent a lot of time. South Africa is probably one of the teams that I've been really interested in over the last uh, few years. And I have spent the last couple of weeks absolutely delving into women's T20 data. And, you know, we've already had one video up on the site about women's T20 batting. We've got another video coming up on women's T20 bowling. And then some other things that that, uh, me and Cheyenne have have picked up on and with some help from um, John Leather, hypercoursed on Twitter, if you want to follow him. But... It's the South African team in that particular game. I think what they really needed against uh, Sri Lanka in that sort of middling to high chase was probably someone to just pump the ball up the top. Well, that's Lizelle Lee, right? And she's not in the team. So there's a fairly obvious uh, mistake that they made almost straight away. And then the other thing that they needed was just a cool head in the middle. And that's Dane van Nierkirk. Now, they've got other players and they've got other talent. I think if you you know focus on it all, all the time, They've made a decision, right? They said Lizelle Lee had to lose weight. She didn't, um, and she retired. They made a decision. We may disagree with it, but that's where they went with. With Dano van Nierkirk, they said that you had to run a 2K time trial in this amount of time. Again, they've made decisions. They've got to move on. But it was interesting that Home World Cup, which is a big deal for any cricket board, you know, uh, everyone at the ICC is watching. You want to be able to host more and more. You want fan engagement. You want you know, the audience to turn up. Um, I mean, some of the crowds have been fine so far, but you certainly, for the South African games, want a little bit of a bump. You don't want to go up against a team that traditionally, and even, I think, even if you look at the odds, is not as good a team uh, coming into this tournament and lose that first game. That's a that's a kick in the, in the throat, right? Um, and the fact is that, as I've just explained that chase, the two players that they probably needed the most in that particular chase were not available to them. So... I think it was. I think that was a big problem from that perspective, and uh, I certainly think that they should. Um, I think that was a bit of an embarrassment for them, and it's kind of a double embarrassment. You lose to Sri Lanka, but then on the other hand, you also have the position where um, the two players that you probably should have had in your squad were uh, would have helped you. So that's the South African one. Um, Sri Lanka really liked the way they've played so far. The two games, I thought in both cases, I don't think they're a legitimate title contender they're obviously well away from the big three teams who you know there's a distance between them and it'd be interesting to see um you know how they go against some of the other stronger teams but in both the games i've watched them against south africa and against bangladesh they had to fight back from various positions there were times in that bangladesh and and i was massively impressed with the way that bangladesh played in that game really uh, you know considering their odds are not that much different to say a team like ireland i haven't seen both teams bangladesh looked like just a 
far superior team. And, and I know this is a quickly developing women's side as well. But I was really impressed with them and, and was thinking that they were going to knock Sri Lanka off in that game. And, and as I said before, similar with that South Africa game. So I, I think that, you know, for a team that has struggled for a while now, um, Sri Lanka, and, you know, really getting together um, a good 11, and obviously that whole thing where Sri Lanka cricket didn't let them play for a couple of years. I think me and Estelle did a podcast on that at the time. I thought they they certainly um, played some brilliant cricket there. And um, I don't know if there are punches chance for the semifinal. I don't, you know, I have to go through and have a look at the, the schedule and where they're playing teams and everything else. But I think they put themselves within a chance of getting the semifinal. If that's the case, also, it'd be very interesting. Let's say the Sri Lankan women did make the semifinal. Again, that's a big embarrassment on Sri Lankan cricket, who basically spent a couple of years not spending any money on them, not developing them, just letting them live their lives on their own, from what I could tell. If they do do that at the same time that the men's team hasn't, I know it's having a bit of a renaissance. Renaissance the right word? Power surge? Um, they're not as bad as they were before, I suppose is what I'm really trying to say. Um, so from that perspective, uh, it'd be a bit embarrassing to Sri Lanka cricket that the team that they ignored is actually getting better. So it would be really, really interesting if they could get in. There's a long way to go before uh, we need to worry about anything from that perspective. But certainly, um, I like the way they've played so far, and I think they're worth w- watching. Um the other team, um, I think I've seen England play a couple of games. I missed India, Pakistan. I was hoping Barrett had actually seen that. I was going to ask him about that one. Um, uh, but I saw, I've seen England uh, play a couple of their games. I suppose the the most interesting one for England was the, um, well, not the most interesting, the least interesting one was probably the Ireland game. But that was a fascinating second innings there. So I, I thought Ireland, certainly in the power play, batted quite well. You know, I've talked about um, Orla before and how she's one to watch for this World Cup. I thought she looked really good. Um, and then there's Gabby Lewis, who I'm assuming is the daughter of Alan Lewis, uh, the former um, Ireland cricketer, sort of TV commentator, I suppose. Um, raconteur, uh, man about town, uh, whatever Alan Lewis um, is. Um, I, I just assume all Irish cricketers are uh, related to other uh, Irish cricketers, by the way, because in in all my research, that has almost always been the case. Um, so apologies if Gabby's not, but I'm pretty sure she is. But yeah, I thought they, they started off really well. Even in their innings, they lost a lot of wickets. I think Soviet Eccleston was on a hat-trick at one stage. They lost three or four wickets sort of in that middle bit, which knocked them out um, from ever making a big total. But what I, I was still impressed by the fact that they kept attacking and they kept batting. It probably cost them another 15 or 20 runs because I think had they been a little bit more circumspect in the middle there they would have been able to knock it around but then that second innings is one of the most bizarre games i have ever watched um so england were chasing i don't know not much more than 100 and uh at one stage um alice capsey was just slapping the ball absolutely everywhere uh ireland uh one of the island bowlers richardson bowled perhaps the one of the worst international overs i've ever seen i'm trying to think of a worst international over i have seen i mean there must be one <laughs> But recency bias is sort of winning this battle with me. Um, half trackers, full tosses. It just, you know, you don't want to use the Y word, but my God, it looked like she had the Y word. Um, it'd be really interesting to see, you know, if there's any comeback from that or whatever. But the other interesting thing is that the three high, uh, the three fastest 50s in uh, women's uh, T20 cricket, and I'm not, I'm assuming this was at the World Cup, not all together, but were all scored against Ireland so far. And I was watching them going, this is, this is bad. Like, and I was feeling bad as well because, as I said, you know, Orla and Gabby can certainly bat. I'm really interested to see how they go um, going ahead. But obviously they need some sort of bowling support. And for a long period I was like, this team doesn't seem to have bowling. <laughs> um, and then England, I'm, what, they must have needed something like 20 off. 50 balls or something. And they just kept losing wickets, and it was bizarre. It was like they were playing baseball, but in a T20 game when they didn't need to, but also doing it really, really badly. And um, I think I think it was Heather Knight who somehow managed to drag the ball back onto her stumps playing a sweep shot. It, there was times where I was like, they only need, what, seven runs to win with four or five wickets in hand or whatever it was, and you were still thinking, they're an outside chance of losing this. Absolutely bizarre game, especially, um, you know, they were looking for the run rate boost. It makes absolute sense. But it was one of those where you're pressing so hard on the run rate that it fell apart. But also they couldn't score for little periods there as well. 
Very, very um, interesting there. So not sure what we learn about that innings from England, but uh, they didn't look like a well-oiled machine. But looking at the odds, they still seem to be tracking pretty well there. Um, so that's what I've seen from the Women's World Cup um, um, so far. Feel free to ask any questions about that as well, if you have any. I've really been enjoying it. The thing I've enjoyed the least, and a huge shout out to Australia uh, uh, for this, was the time difference. So, you you know, one game in UK hour starts at 4 a.m., you know, by the time I finished working, it's around noon. And then I had, you know, the hour, hour and a half. But then it's the late night game that is just absolutely uh, killing me um, <laughs> at the moment. And it's going to get worse, of course, when, uh, you know, I have to get up even earlier. But uh, but from what I've seen, I really enjoyed it. Again, feels like a big step up in talent. You know, Bangladesh is a perfect example of that. I thought they did well in the ODI World Cup. But I really like the look of them. And, you know, there's a couple of really good uh, players in, in, their, in their lineup as well. Uh, really interesting to follow them going ahead. But we're going to take a quick break here and I'll start to line up some of your questions. But afterwards, I have done quite a bit of research on the, what are we calling it? Women's Premier League? Yeah, WPL, isn't it? Yeah, Women's Premier League. So we'll get to that. And then after that, I'll get to the rest of your questions. All right, let's get to the Women's Premier League uh, draft. And Barra, as I said, is uh, retired her again, uh, but I'm sure uh, we're going to try and do a bonus episode tomorrow. We'll talk about the photos and, and a little bit more of the test match. Um, and if, if he covered the India uh, or saw the India-Pakistan uh, women's game as well, that was one of the few that uh, I was a bit too busy for. But let's get to the draft. It's really, really interesting. There's some questions on the draft that people have already put in as well. So I'll, I'll try and answer those at the end. Although one of them I think I'm going to answer beforehand um in my in my uh, words which might tell you a little bit how we don't know a lot but i think the, the most important thing i think the f- top four slots were all done by all-rounders there's no big surprise there but there's a very good you know uh specialist players uh, in women's t20 cricket so it was interesting that they you know n- not one of them slipped into the top four i think jemima rodriguez might have been in the top i'm trying to remember who it was but there was jemima rodriguez and perhaps beth mooney were the two top specialists. Uh, I, I'm not completely surprised by that, but you could certainly see that there was a, um, what's the best way of putting it? Um, there was a huge bump given to some of the players uh, based on all-rounders. So w- the one that I felt most interesting about was Annabelle Sutherland. Um, so she went for 85000 US, so a very good wage. But if you look at her as a bowler so far, while she's obviously talented, she's probably one of the tallest women bowls in the world. I don't know if we have Hawkeye data for release points, but I watched her play for the Renegades when she was very young, actually. And it was just, it looked like Tom Moody um, bowling to, you know, to tend to Taibu at times, just the amount of b- bounce and carry she could get. And she's not fast at all. But I think her main skill at the moment is probably hitting towards the end, which, to be fair, not that many of the, there aren't that many bowlers. There are a lot of all rounders. And there are a lot of players who can, you know, nudge it and move it around. Annabelle might be in a situation where she's getting paid extra because she uh, is such a unique role. But considering what she's done so far in international cricket and on the franchise circuit, that's a lot of money to to get paid. And I think she got more, what well, more than double than someone like Megan Shute did. Now, that tells you a lot. I think age is a factor there, but I do think the all round status um, is really, really important. And the the Australians were actually quite quite interesting, you know. Um, Megan Schutt, uh, Jess Jonathan, um, uh, you know, uh, Alyssa Healy, none of those went for big money. And because I've just done the research and it's very, very fresh in my mind, you know, Beth Mooney going for a lot of money makes sense. But I would have thought that, oh, I mentioned Healy at the end because I, th- I think that's really interesting. But Jess Jonathan, I don't know when we're putting that video up live, but um, it'll probably be pretty soon. It might be in the morning. Is it Tuesday morning or Wednesday morning? It's very soon uh, when that video is coming up. But you'll see that Jess Jonathan's record at the death as a left-arm finger spinner is absolutely extraordinary. She's uh, brilliant at what she does. Absolutely fantastic for a finger spinner to be that skillful at the end. And her record just is, it's bizarrely good. I think she's averaging something like seven runs per wicket at an economy of seven. And there's a couple of other players as well on a similar sort of plane to her, but not on her usage. Last couple of years, she's just been a giant. Now, she's a little bit older. And I think the other thing with Jonathan that is worth mentioning is that she is a finger spitter. And so uh, there might be a situation there where because um, she's a finger spinner, you know, in Asia, they thought, well, we've got a few of those around. We don't need her as much. However, 
and I'll get to this, there was a finger spinner that went for a lot of money in this auction from overseas. So I did find that interesting. With Megan, I just thought her numbers have deflated over the last couple of years. Uh, I talked about I talked about this on the video that her figures are very similar to someone like Bhuvi Kumar, where essentially they get so good in the power play that people just start blocking them out. In fact, I think it was New Zealand attacking her in the power play, and I was like, what are you doing? Don't give her wickets. Just chip away at her. You don't need to do that. Again, uh, you know, age might be a factor there, but it's a hell of a bowler to slip so far in the draft. So uh, I, I thought those were really interesting. But there's a lot of um, interesting stuff with the Australian players, and there's so many talented Australian players that you can pick and choose a little bit more when it comes to the overseas. Um, but Alana King was not bought, and she's someone that certainly absolutely dominates the middle overs of T20 games, and she's a wrist spinner. I would have thought that uh, I think – I'm trying to remember now – she. She's taken something like 50 or 60 wickets in the middle overs of T20 games. And I think this, I think I'm getting my numbers right that the next, the third and fourth people on the list maybe have taken about the same as her. Great average, great economy, you know, absolutely starring and didn't go. Again, she's a spinner. So my first thought then was okay, you know, they're just taking um, Indian spinners because they can get them, you know, cheaper and get them as a local talent. But Sophie Eccleston went for 220,000 US. She's almost in the top, well, she must be close to the top 10 or wherever. You're certainly one of the highest specialists. That seems like a bizarre um, situation to be in. Uh, really, really, that, that was the one that threw me. That was the one that surprised me. Not that she's not great because she, she is. In fact, I talk about how I think she could have better numbers if she was used slightly better in T20 cricket so far. But even then, I was absolutely shocked at her going for so much and, you know, Jonathan not going for particularly much money at all and Alana King not going at all. So some interesting stuff there from, from, the, from, the, uh, from the auction. How come every time I do well, now WPL or IPL, I want to call it a draft and every other league I talk about, I call there's an auction. It's like I've got some wiring wrong in my head. Sophia Dunkley went for 70000 For me, she's one of the best buys. I would have thought, looking at that board, as uh, you know, where the other players went, what the local players went for, I would have thought that she was probably a one twenty to one thirty thousand dollar player. Her numbers in the power play, I think, over the last couple of years, she's been averaging around forty with with a high strike rate, one of the highest strike rates. A brilliant hitter of the ball. I would have thought that she would have been worth more than that. So that's a really interesting one um, to look out for. But here's my big one, and I can't remember if someone asked me on here or somewhere else, but if I had thoughts about, uh, you know, what players would go for money. And my first thought looking through everything is when I'm looking at, a, you know, an auction or a draft, I'm looking at what the local players, you know, choose a lot of. So this goes back to the Sophie Eccleston and Alana King and Jess Jonathan thing of, I could see how, you know, Adil Rashid or Tabray Shamsi might get overlooked, right? Because India is going to be like, yeah. We can get him, but he's going to cost a little bit extra. Plus, he needs an overseas spot. Whereas, actually, we could probably get a fairly decent backup spinner um, available to us for a tenth of the price, and and then we'll do it that way. That's not the case with wicket keepers. And I thought this was looking at it. We know India women have had all sorts of problems uh, with the wicket keeping. You know, Risha Ghosh is their is their new star, and she certainly went for a lot of money, but. There aren't really other T20 wicket keepers out there that I'm aware of, unless there's a lot of uh, great talent coming through. But when I talked to women's cricket experts, they were saying the same thing, that wicket keeping is kind of what they were expecting to see some money for the overseas players come in for. And it hasn't happened. <laughs> it is uh, definitely not happened at all um, from that perspective. So um, I'm trying to think. Uh, Boyce from Scotland was unsold. And I'll get to what I think she was unsold in two different ways that don't make any sense to me but i think she's a very good player and i certainly would have had her um amy jones is another player that i would have thought would have gone and of course lizelle lee considering that india doesn't seem to have a lot of wicket keeping talent I, and you might get players like you know, someone like beth mooney might wicket keep in the wpl um i don't know how often she wicket keeps anymore but i you know she certainly can wicket keep so you might get some situations like that but it does seem odd to me that um some of the key overseas wiki keepers, you know, were either underpaid like Alyssa Healy or didn't go at all. Very, very interesting. Tara Norris from the USA was picked up. So there was a there was a stipulation that any team could, if they wanted to, have an extra overseas player in their squad if they picked an associate player. This again comes back to the wicket keeping because of course Boyce is from Scotland. So you could have got her as a free wicket keeping substitute. 
essentially. She wasn't going to go for a lot of money. There's also, and I've forgotten her name now, but the Thai wicketkeeper is another wicketkeeper that I was thinking, and she could still get signed later on, of course. But I, again, I was thinking that that could be someone that, that they could be looking at. But in the end, only one team um, took that up. And having watched Fairbreak, I, th- I thought there were some pretty good players out there that it might be worth just stashing on your books. You know, younger associate players, you know, uh, especially some of the hitters where I thought that they might be able to go, but only one team. I mean, well done to Tara Norris um, for getting through big for USA cricket uh, to have someone picked up. But yeah, very interesting again. And then the, the, the last thing that I noticed that, that was really cool was um, Dane Van Nierkirk uh, will be playing for RCB and Marazan Cup will be playing for the Capitals. I'm pretty sure, I think this is right. Um, I'm sure it's been reported before and I'm not breaking this, but quite often when they go to overseas leagues, they ask to be in the same team. And mostly, I think that has happened. I'm not sure if it has all the time, but I think more often than not, they've played for the same team. They certainly request that. You know, the auction kind of makes that impossible, right? Um, it works in a different way. Um, so, you know, as a couple, uh, they're going to be separated there, um, which is a shame for them, but quite interesting. I mean, also interesting that Dane, not fit enough to play uh, for South Africa, but he has been picked up on, on, on a fairly low contract, I think, uh, there. Um there were some questions in the room as well. So I've left one player off to get to the question. Mukesh. So Mukesh says, why um, so little for Perry? Perry's old, man. Um, and I think this also shows that, you know, there is still that. And, and I think there's a few other players that I looked at as well. And I think I had the the same thing. You know, Susie Bates is another one. Um, uh, Sophie Devine, I don't think went for as much money as, as perhaps she should have. There were certainly a few players that I looked at and I thought, oh, they should go for more money. But then you start to factor in that you don't want to overpay. This is such a random story. But I remember the first year of the WNBA, and I think they all got to pick a franchise player beforehand, or maybe it was in the first round of the draft or whatever that was. And I remember, I want to say it was Phoenix, but it may not have been the Mercury, but it might have been another team, picked Michelle Timms. Michelle Timms had been the, the point guard for the Australian team and, you know, high-energy player, really smart, um, you know, proper floor general type point guard, you know, pass-first type point guard. But she'd she was she moved on a little bit. And I remember watching her in the WNBA, the few games I saw, and I was like, she's no longer the Michelle Timms that they have got. And the one thing I would say, I don't, dis- I don't agree with everything. I don't understand the wicketkeeper thing. I think there was too high a premium paid for the all-round skills and maybe not enough paid to some of the specialists who are absolutely great. Don't really understand what was going on with Eccleston compared to some of the other spinners. But I would say overall, they did seem to factor in the age thing a little bit more. And, and I think that's a really, really important uh, way of dealing with it if, if I was dealing with it. Uh, you know, for a mega auction, I think I wrote, uh, I, I did a video on this for the men. You really want players between the age of 23 and 27. And I suppose for women, that's probably 21 and 26. And the reason you want players there is that they're getting to the point where they understand their game, but you've got them under control for a period of time as well. What you don't really want is to spend a lot of money on 32, 33-year-olds. You know, uh, some of these players... uh, I'm assuming we're hanging on for these contracts and they might just play one or two years. Um, You you really want to make sure that whoever you have under control uh, is going to be around for a good period of time. Um, And uh, so I can understand that. And and Elise Perry is fantastic and she'll be great for marketing. And she's still a very, very good player, but she's, you know, she's no longer Ashley Gardner, right? Like Ashley Gardner, I think, has the highest strike rate of any woman. Um, took a five the other day, you know, really, really skillful bowler, can hit from ball one. Elise Perry has had a bit of a renaissance with the bat. Uh, she started after years of being a very plodding hitter. She's certainly playing a lot, a lot more explosive, uh, I think. Maybe in the last 12 months, I think Cheyenne was telling me that when we were doing our video. So I, she's not a dud, and you would still pay for her, of course. And, and Marazan Cup is probably in a similar situation. You've got two players um, who've been playing for a very long time. But I think you do, especially with a, you know this sort of situation, I think you really want to get as many players as possible in that sort of mid-age tier range, unless there's a player of... You know, someone like Beth Mooney, where, uh, you know, you think of yourself, well, she's the best player, you know, best batter in the world at the moment. If we get two years of her as best batter in the world, then we can kind of drape some more averaging average batters around her, maybe even some more all-rounders around her um, if you need to be. So I think, yeah, that was quite interesting. Look, a lot of people have asked me about the teams. Let's have a look. Chitra says, on women's IPL auction, RCB has an awesome team on paper, as they always do, but Delhi Capital looks like it could be one for the future. That kind of 
seems to fit both of their men's teams as well, doesn't it? I haven't had a look, good look at the teams. Um, but certainly we'll go through it. It won't be, I think someone was asking me about the team maps for them. It's really hard to get any data, but they haven't played together, so I can't even do a team map on them. But I think we'll have a look maybe closer to the season. There might be some other moves, you know, there might be some injuries and um, some other decisions that are made uh, as we go forward. But before the season, we'll try and have a look at the teams. But I was more just having a look at the the auction and and everything else. But what a great day for women's cricket, really. Uh, You know, players going for 400,000 US dollars, a lot of players uh, becoming professionals for the first time. Uh, excitement I, you know i talked to a couple of players they're just over the moon um to be involved with this and you know i'm really looking forward to the tournament myself I'm, i have no idea what it clashes with but it, it seems to be at this time of the year everything's clashing with everything i feel like usually i don't do that much work at this time of year i don't know why i'm doing so much now but um i try and cover it as best i can but thanks for the questions on it uh, i'll play uh, another break uh, or another ad here and I will go through your questions. Uh, there's already some good ones that have come through, but I'll add a couple more. Uh, let's get to some more questions. In fact, I might just go on with the women's ones because I think there's a few that came through here. Huraday says, uh, there seems to be more around as women's cricket than men's. Is that because a smaller pool of players means they have to undertake, undertake multiple roles? No, so this comes back. If you watch associate cricket, everyone's an all-rounder. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous how many all-rounders there are in associate cricket. And... and uh, 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 Richard Doan, who I think now works for the USA Cricket, he was asking me, I suppose, because when I was working for Scotland, he was sort of asking what I thought of the talent pool in associate cricket. And obviously, it's really good and, and there's lots of good players. And I said, but you'll know when associate cricket has turned and that is when there are fewer all-rounders. Um, and I think at the point when you see fewer all-rounders, uh, that's when you'll understand that um, – uh, you're maximizing you know the talent in each one of those countries when when you've got so many players who can bat and bowl and you know you look at some of the associate teams sometimes and you're like everyone's listed as an all-rounder but when you actually watch them they're all-rounders at the associate level but they're certainly not all-rounders at the higher level and i think women's cricket is very similar just that we haven't maximized the talent um of women at the moment and by that i mean we're only just starting to activate the professional side of things we're only just starting to you know countries like pakistan bangladesh um, South Africa, Sri Lanka are only just starting to, you know, get to them, um, you know, more women involved over the last couple of years. As that happens, I think then you will then start to see the natural drop off. Um, the same, the same as you know, watching the Netherlands now or Ireland now. You know, if you watched Ireland in the mid two thousands, kind of everyone was an all rounder, and you know, you get to the end and Kevin O'Brien doesn't bowl much anymore, and you know, sort of John Cusack level players sort of start to fade away a little bit. Is it John Cusack? Alex Cusack. John Cusack's the actor. As far as I'm aware, John Cusack has not played cricket for Ireland. Although, as I said, all Irish cricketers are related, so <laughs> take that for what it is. Um, but yeah, that's that's my theory on the all-rounders. Um, happy to be proved wrong, uh, but I think I've, I've said that to quite a few people within um, the associate game and the women's game, and they seem to agree uh, a lot. I had two questions about Kate Cross. What happened to Kate Cross? Was waiting for her, says um, Sevilla. Knowledge Predator says Kate Cross has not been a regular in England T20 set, t- set up. Why she went unsold? So we we've got the video on her coming out, or so not on her on the T20 bowlers. According to me, she's the best strike bowler in women's T20 cricket, and it's her numbers are ridiculous. I think she's averaging something like twelve or thirteen in the power play. She kind of bowls, for those who haven't seen her, she bowls a little bit wider of the wicket sometimes, but she angles the ball in with a wobble ball uh, and just takes a lot of a lot of bolts, uh, a few LBWs as well. But I'm not that surprised because, you know, Amiga Shoot went down uh, for, for a lower amount as well. And also, I, as skillful as Kate is, I'm not sure that she's – I think if you're going to – like Izzy Wong went for thirty or 40000 I think that's right – Whereas with Izzy Wong, you're like, well, she's going to be fast forever. Maybe with Kate, you're thinking uh, she's not particularly fast. She obviously, you know, is not a plus batter um, probably at that level. Although at that level, you know, we've seen her at the 100 occasionally, um, you know, make some runs. But, yeah, I think it was a mistake. But I'd have to go through all these seam bowlers and and have a look how many specialists were taken ahead of her before I'd be that comfortable um, to say that. But, yes, I think Jess Jonathan – and and um, Alana King and uh, Kate Cross were the three specialist bowlers that I thought were fantastic 
and only one of them's been bought and the uh, and the other and she was probably underpaid so it's very very interesting uh, from that perspective all right let's get on to some of the questions from not about the wpl was the ash and the replica really selected based on just the action or the skills as well um in some footage he seems to rush for his action no no he uh, he's a first class cricketer I think I've said this ad nauseum now. So you probably, if people who listen to the podcast all the time or watch the videos have probably um, heard this, but A, it's a really common thing to do, but B, they were picking someone who they thought was um, a reasonable facsimile, but a facsimile is a facsimile, right? Like no one was expecting him to be Ashwin because if he was Ashwin, you know, he'd be in the team ahead of um, Akshar Patel, right? Or maybe not, but he'd be on the verge of being um, in ahead of Akshar Patel. So no one, it, look, it, well, it's not a magic pill or anything. Um, what you're really trying to do is get get people used to, you know, that sort of an action coming into you. And then obviously he bowls in a fairly similar way. Um, gives you, what, 0.2% a better chance. But is that worth spending a couple of thousand dollars on an airfare? Probably. And this has been happening for, uh, for a very, very long time. Um, it's a very, very common thing. I think because Ashwin has such a weird action, not an action, but a run-up, and this guy has mimicked that, that it probably stands out a lot more. But you're going to find a lot of very tall left-arm bowlers in the nets before people play Marco Janssen, right? We've seen teams try Lassif Malinga imitators. Even I've seen teams even tell people to bowl the ball with low arms. It's a really, really common thing. I think there was a couple of nonsense stories from, from, it, uh, from that test match. Um, and I think this was one where perhaps people who don't know as much about how modern cricket is played thought that that sounded weirder than it was but anyone who actually has worked with the team or you know is you know maybe on the ground a little bit more and in the nets a little bit more will know that that's a fairly common thing to have happen and it says is matt kuhneman any good i think his average is around 35 in first class cricket i haven't done a uh, look sorry um i to see if he if that's improved but i saw him early in his career and I've seen him recently. And Dan Brodick also um, was messaging me about him the other day before he got selected. So, And we were both in a broad agreement that he's certainly I – th- I think we both think he's a better bowler than Ashton Agar at the moment and that he has improved a lot. If he was really good, though, you know, he would have been in the squad. There's no reason why they couldn't have brought him over, even from the experience. If they do play him, Green has to be bowling fit. And if Green's not bowling fit, I assume Ashton Agar comes in, um, if that's the case. Um, but but if not, uh, and Green might still come into bat, of course. But if Green is playing, and, I, and let's say, you know, assume Cummins is going to play in the next test as well. He's certainly got an extra couple of days of break. If you add Green and Cummins, and you know, you're then in a situation. If you want to have that long tail again, you can try Kuhneman uh, with uh, Lyon and with. Um, uh, Murphy. The other option, of course, is to bring Agar in, who gives you a little bit more batting. I don't think his batting is going to be, you know, he's, the average is over 20 in this series. Uh, if he plays the last three tests, that's a huge win for Australia. Um, but, you know, you don't have to average over 20, right? He could have a couple of innings that are really, really key or important, hold up an end, whatever he needs to do. But yes, uh, I, I do think he, he's decent, but there's a lot of interesting uh, selection questions for australia uh, when it comes to the the way it all fits together uh Shubham says is jadeja underrated yes i think he is it, it's really interesting where we're doing a big video on him which may or may not come out this week on a similar kind of uh, tangent but the, the deeper you dive into his record the more you realize he just hasn't played enough and sometimes he's dropped and he's injured a lot and just hasn't played as much test cricket and i do think that holds him back and also you see this a lot with three-format players. Their, their records, you either get remembered for one type of cricket or your records all get mixed up and people can't remember if you're good at this and you're good at that. Like Mohamed Shami is a really good example of someone who has a really inflated uh, reputation in T20 cricket based on the fact we know how good Mohamed Shami is in Test cricket. But if we really dive down deep into it, I don't know if we're all sitting there saying the same thing about his, his T20 uh, record. So... I do think that at times Jadeja may be struggling in the white ball or not being as good in the white ball has, has um, caused some issues, but he's a fantastic cricketer. Uh, there's absolutely no doubt about that. And um, I, I start with the question of if you were drafting for test cricket right now and you weren't as much worried about age, 
But even if you were worried about age, I wonder where he goes in that draft. Because I think you'd make a fairly solid argument that he's the only all-rounder in the world who can bat top six and also be a front four bowler. Stokes probably could on talent, but there's no way, the way that Stokes throws himself into his bowling, that you would ever have him as you know one of your four bowlers for more than one, a one-off test. Um, and Jason Holder is just not quite good enough with the bat. Um, and, you know, uh, probably just doesn't have that kind of impact. And then you're looking at the top batters, right, in that period. If you're looking, especially over the last three or five years, where everyone's sort of dropped off, you know, Baba Azam is probably the only one, but I'm, I just don't think you're picking Baba Azam over Ravi Jadeja. It's, it's a really interesting question. So that's one of the things that we're looking at with a video for Jadeja. Um, it'd probably end up being two videos because I think there's a second really interesting question that needs to be asked of him. Um, but I do think he's underrated. If you look at the greatest records of or of all-rounders already, he's there. If he retires now, he's on the list of uh, certainly top 10, but maybe top five, right? And, uh, you know, there and thereabouts uh, for impact. He is probably the last all-rounder since, and for a top-class team, and I'm not counting wiki-keeping all-rounders in this, but for a top-class team, he's probably the last all-rounder who for a consistent, a long period of time could be a top six batter and uh, a top four bowler. The other ones have probably obviously both them in his period. Imran Khan towards the end, although I still see Imran Khan as like a high-functioning number seven, but Imran Khan's another one. And then the other one is obviously Keith Miller. And I would have thought that Jadeja's figures are really similar to Keith Miller's. Uh, just uh, I think Miller would have had him with bowling average and Jadeja's probably catching him with batting average now. Um, Keith Miller, I mean, wow you know to be mentioned in that name uh in in that list and you know the callous and sobers uh it's hard to judge someone like Jadeja against those sorts of players but at the moment he's probably more in that sort of keith miller uh, aubrey faulkner level um if you're playing um jared kimber bingo you can have a drink at aubrey faulkner um but yeah he's probably in that sort of tier um, of all-rounders, of, you know, sort of a genuine all-rounder in two different skill sets, which is a little bit different to perhaps what Callis and Sobers and Stokes and Kapil Dev and everyone else was. And it's probably what early career Ian Botham was, and it's obviously what late career Imran Khan was. But listen to the names I'm saying. To be mentioned, in, you know, uh, with those players, absolutely incredible. Kanasani says, if you were Australia's bowling coach, how would you try and improve Lions bowling performance in India? I'm not a bowling coach, uh, so it's hard. This is the thing. I think there are three things counting against. Three things? I think there are three things counting against a lion. One is that he is a traditional Western um, off-spinner, and so his natural ball is not as potent in Asia, but certainly in India as other people. He then traditionally is very slow. I bowled to Nathan Lyon. Uh, Nathan Lyon. I bowled to Eddie Cowan. Uh, not long after Eddie Cowan made his test debut in the Nets. Um, I dismissed Eddie Cowan, by the way. And Eddie Cowan lied at the time and said I did not dismiss him. And then a couple of days later, rang me up to admit that I had dismissed him. I haven't forgotten that, Eddie. But um, I remember Eddie saying that I was really slow for, uh, for a spinner, which is true. Um, I have got a lot quick uh, over the last couple of years before I broke my arm. Um, but I was really slow when I was bowling to Eddie. And he was saying that even so, I wasn't actually that much slower than someone like Nathan Lyon. And Nathan Lyon's way slower than everyone else. Um, at test cricket, watch some of the paces he was bowling in this test match. He was getting up to 90, 95 kilometers an hour. That shows that he's trying to, uh, you know, work it out. He bowls around the wicket in Australia at times, but when he's bowling around the wicket in Australia, it's more for that sort of leg slip trap. He was bowling around the uh, wicket in this test match because he thought it was the best place to bowl from um, based on, you know, what, what goes on in India. So again, he's trying these different things. I think his biggest problem is that he's still a natural overspinner of the ball. And as someone who probably has a little bit of that in, in my crappy bowling and as, having watched people over the years, I remember bowling with a guy once who bowled off spin and he would just get the ball to move sideways on every surface. My captain just saying, why can't you do that? And I was just like, I, I'm trying. I just can't do it. And I think some people are just very natural at being able to do that and get that, you know, that fizz um, out of their fingers to be able to, you know, almost almost on that kind of an angle. And it's something that Gareth Batty talks about. There are very few spinners who can kind of go between the two, which is why a lot of very good finger spinners don't have great records in Australia because they struggle to then move back to the overspin in that situation. Ashwin is probably a perfect example of someone who could do it. And Harass is probably someone who struggled 
um, at times. Harath, we're talking about top tier um, and you know spin bowling talent of all time, but it just didn't have that ability to be able to do that consistently. So um, I think how you do that with Lyon, I think if they could have, uh, you know, he's worked with Craig Howard, worked with John Davison, he's worked with Shri. Uh, who else has he worked with? Um, he's probably, you know, worked with some of the Indian, um, uh, former Indian bowlers, people like Bishan Beatty and uh, Prasanna and those sorts of guys before. Um, he, he's worked with a lot of talented people, you know, and he's worked with Shane Warne as well. If he's not doing it at the, this age, I would say he may never be able to do it. And unfortunately for him, that means he, you know, as I, I said on the video the other day, it sort of caps him as a, as a high ceiling, low floor player in India. And that means Australia needs a, a gun strike spinner to match him with. They'll probably at their best when Steve O'Keefe did that role. And, you know, maybe Murphy can be that bowler. Don't really see him. And I think Murphy, Murphy, Murphy's ceiling in India right at the moment, and this is very biased based on that last test, is maybe slightly higher than uh, Lions. But I still, I'm not sure that we're ever going to see Murphy, you know, pull a Graham Swan um, or something like that. Although he's so young, he might just do that. Uh, Shubham says, why don't New Zealand replicate the South Africa 20 initiative? Are they lacking currencies? Well, they're lacking money. Look, the South African thing was, South African cricket was way more broke than New Zealand cricket. It was really poorly run. They had started a league that never even existed. Things were falling apart there. And they saw this as very much a last ditch effort to try and keep them relevant, to keep some of their players paid at home. It'd be really interesting to see what we think of what they've done in five years' time. Let's say New Zealand don't do it. And New Zealand just keep going, no, we're going to do it this way. Um, it, it would be very interesting for me to see which one is the better option going ahead. But what South Africa has done has basically given up ownership of their local competition to IPL owners. And I don't think you do that unless you're as desperate as South Africa were. Um, you know, reading between the lines from a distance with, with Major League Cricket, it seems one of the reasons why there's been, not issues there, but there's been, you know, the, the draft was pushed back um, a couple of weeks and all those sorts of things. My guess is that the IPL owners have tried to do something very similar there when they, when they want to come in and that the Major League's like, no, this is going to be a league run for us, but you're going to be obviously really important in that. This is complete from the outside. This is not what Major League's are feeding me, but there's something not right there. And I think if you're in a position of power like Major League Cricket is, you know, even if it's slight power at, the, at that time, you probably p play that card. Cricket South Africa, the first league was a flop and never even started. The Manzanzi League was basically a really, really poor last-minute thing that didn't make them any money. They were so behind the eight ball. They had the racism uh, problems. They had the cricket board problems. They had the leadership problems. They had the coach problems. They had player problems. Someone came to them and said, we're going to give you a lot of money and we're going to own this part of your cricket. And they said, yes. I don't think every board, is, and in 10 years' time, everyone might just go, let's just do it. But right at the moment, I don't see that as, uh, you know, the greatest option for everyone else. Ekant with a super chat. Ekant says, how T20 is Murphy's test bowling? Um, I didn't, I wasn't sitting there thinking I was watching a T20 bowler. I mean, he's fast through the air. So I suppose now um, that makes us think, doesn't it, of, of T20 cricket. He's uh, very accurate as well. So that's another thing. I wasn't sitting there going, oh, this is a T20 bowler. He's done very well in, in the Big Bash so far. Um, uh, he's got a bowling average of 20 uh, and his economy is under, under six. Um, Something maybe very well underselling that. Um, but if you're if you're asking if your bigger question, Egant, is does it translate? Then I certainly think he's bowling um, at T20 level, and I think most people would have seen more of it, until this test. Certainly, people would have seen more of him as a T20 bowler, Egant, than they would have as a first class bowler. I, I'm just really impressed with him uh, the way he goes about these things and and everything else. But someone has just said. Oh my God, I've just said, so the start of this podcast, I was saying that I was deeply unimpressed with New Zealand. And while I've been recording it, New Zealand have been bowled out for 67, uh, chasing 133 against the South African women. That is, oh, that's awful. That's an awful looking scorecard. Sorry for the live reactions here. Um, oh my God. Absolutely. Three for 13, four for 18, five for 31. They just lost... Regular wickets, didn't they? All the way through. What's their best partnership? Is it maybe the eighth wicket or ninth wicket partnership? Oh, rancid. 
Sektari Tyron, who went for, what'd she go for about 30 or 40,000, I think, in the um, in the auction today. So she made 40 off 34. Uh, so they made 132. That's two really rancid batting um, performances by New Zealand women, by the way. Anyway, um, might be might be for another time, but um, I just thought I'd have a look at that. Uh, but yes, um, just on Tom Murphy. Yeah, I, look, I, I think he does have a lot of T20 pre- uh, potential. I don't, not sure he's like an IPL player or anything like that. He obviously can't bat in the field. He didn't look like he was a plus field. He didn't didn't look like he was terrible, of course. But yeah, quite interesting um, how he goes in T20 cricket as he gets more and more known. Also, the other thing is, you know, if he's not going to be an IPL player and probably not going to play in major T20 leagues, certainly if, if the major leagues are going forward, America, England, PSL, IPL, let's say. And I'm just guessing, I'll leave South Africa and, you know, whatever happened in the UAE with the black belts and everything um, to the side for a moment. But if, if those are the main ones, how many leagues is someone like Todd Murphy going to get? So his best bet is probably to develop his, his test bowling, right? So it's a really interesting one. You know, we keep talking about this. Oh, everyone's going to go to T20. Well, when all the most talented players go to T20, what about the players who don't scale that direction or maybe can't make as much money from that go? I think that's really, really interesting. Um, Christopher has given us a, um, Christopher Young, sorry, has given us a super chat. Thank you, Christopher. How good will Kyle Mays be for the West Indies in Test? 36 for the bat and 19 for the ball. I find he's such a fascinating player. Yeah, so Kyle Mayers, almost from the time, so I scouted him before he made his runs against was it Bangladesh. Yeah. Made the double century against Bangladesh. So he was on my radar um, as a potential. And I couldn't work out where he kind of fit in as a, as a CPL prospect. Wasn't an elite bowler and was slow. And as a batter, it had never really clicked at that point. Clearly he could bat, but you were thinking at that stage, he looked to me like a number eight batter uh, who would be your fifth or sixth best bowler. And that's not... A, a tidy package, right? Like no one wants that. Then makes a double hundred in a test match. Of course, gets all the hype for his batting kind of since then. I'd say his bowling is probably outshone. I mean, it, he's kind of like almost like a Darren Stevens level bowler, Christopher, in some ways in that you're just like, this shouldn't work at test level, except he keeps getting wickets. He's very skillful as a bowler. And I think he's not quite as accurate as pa- perhaps say someone like Scott Boland. I mean, Scott Boland's pitch map in that last test match was obscene. Um, or Muhammad, um, uh, I was going to say Muhammad Asif, but that's going back a little bit too far. But, you know, one of those 80 mile an hour bowlers in test cricket that makes it. Kyle Mays is not at that level of accuracy, but he does get good energy off the pitch and he is very, very skillful. You know, he can. I'm pretty sure he can swing the ball both ways and move between a wobble ball um, and he uses the crease quite well. There's a lot to like about him. But I still think overall he's kind of like a low usage player. I'm not. I'm not sure. He, I wonder what kind of team he'd be really good in. Uh, but his numbers so far they work. But the, I feel like the West Indies are like it's like begrudgingly giving him a game because he they does feel bits and pieces. But at the moment, you know, he's getting the absolute most out of those bits and pieces. Uh, Cornwall, look, I I think. West Indies cricket has moved on from Cornwall. I don't know. I, I haven't talked to anyone in West Indies cricket in a while about him. My guess is that Rakeem is is trying to make a play um, in American cricket. He seems to be on every highlights package of every tournament I ever watch in the US at the moment. Um, so I don't know what his status is or anything. You know, I wish him luck. Lo- you know, lovely guy, incredible talent. I still hope. Well, I know we haven't seen the best of him, and you know, I fear that we might never see the best of him from here on in. But yeah, I think the West Indies have probably moved on um, a little bit. Um, a little bit more so uh from that perspective um it's very sad um but you know sadly these things happen we, we covered it christopher in you know in the in the last thing the one thing i, I you know I, I always go on about this with cornwall is we can go on and on about the fact that he probably can't run a 2k time trial and he probably weighs more than the west indies want but his other athletic gifts are you know he'd be in the top 100 percentile for probably you know hand-eye coordination and uh, power, maybe really high up there for wrist dexterity as well. I mean, he basically bowls off spin kind of all from his shoulder and all from his wrist, um, which is more like a part-timer. But, you know, again, you know, height for that. I, I just think he's a fantastic player um, from that perspective. And, and it makes me sad that we haven't seen uh, more of him. Um, and I just got one last question because 
can't help myself. I like this one. Uh, Shrenath says, Son of Gavaska is considered as one of the best batters ever, while Jeff Boycott and Gordon Greenwich are rated lesser than him. Uh, Son of Gavaska probably has a slightly longer test career, I would have thought, than, um, than Boycott. Does he have a higher test average? But Boycott played in England. Gordon Greenwich was a fantastic player. I'm not sure that Gavaska isn't the best of those three. Maybe that's unfair to boycott. He was abs- you know. Um, I, I, I think, I think if you're rating them all, you might have to, you might have to watch out for a video series we're doing, uh, enough uh, and not too far to see where they all end up. There were issues with boycott that they weren't with Gavaska, like you know him going missing and the Rebel series and all those sorts of things that he was involved with. Greenwich, I would have thought, just average less than the other two, and I wonder if that is part of it. But he was certainly a fantastic player as well. You'd have to deep dive it because the other thing I was thinking then is um, Gavaska's record would he should have the highest average of the three, but he also played in India, which would have had the best conditions for batting. So he averages fifty-one, and let's have a look at Boycott. Greenwich is forty-four, and Boycott is what forty-seven, forty-eight. Yeah, 40, 48. So Gavaska has that extra bump on his average but what is going to be interesting is when you actually have a look at the eras that they played in uh, the averages of their teammates but also the averages of you know per, uh, runs per wicket when they played to see who is a better player because of those records boycott might be better but opening the batting in england is exponentially harder um than opening the batting in probably the west indies but certainly than in india so um yeah i think i think there's a few different things there but I will get to it. I promise you. Um, absolutely, that's a fantastic, a, a, a fantastic issue. And you see this as well. Like there are players that do stick out a little bit more. And when you look at their records, they're only slightly better than someone else we've forgotten. There's just a lot of really, really good cricketers, and it's hard to be remembered forever. Um, and you know, having India behind you um, is certainly a big part of it. Boycott was a difficult person. Gordon Greenwich also. The one other thing I would say about him is. This is going to sound weird, but he wasn't always fully respected in the West Indies. And part of that reason was he was seen as an English player playing for them. That might tarnish his record. Gavaska has gone on to have the longest media career. You know, Gordon Greenwich doesn't talk to the media that much. Boycott was, I think he said he was cancelled. I mean, he should have been cancelled about 10 times for about 100 different things he had said. But, you know, uh, Gavaska's still on air, right? Gavaska might be on, you know, commentating for another five or 10 years. Um, those things really, really matter um, uh, when we're looking at at, at, uh, at legacies and everything else. Um, and uh, as someone else has just said in the contact, uh, Pratik's just said in the comments, also, Gavaska made 10,000 runs. That was another big thing. And Boycott probably would have made that, right, if he, you know, he didn't go missing occasionally and have other priorities and everything else. So when you're looking at that, you know, those great records of um, of those former players, we're forgetting that they lived a career at that time. All right, so we go back and we go, boycott average 47, and he was fantastic. Remember that he was a pain in the ass, and not all of his teammates liked him. All those sorts of little things that we know because uh, who's a modern player? Like, we know of boy, we know about KP, right? Because we lived through KP, we didn't live through boycott, so we don't know about that. Ken Barrington's another one, right? You look at his record, but then you go back and Ken Barrington probably suffers from depression and a lot of players probably didn't see that, you know, didn't handle that very well that in that era. You know, all these different little things of, uh, of how different players are looked at. One of the great ones is Bradman, of course. Bradman plays in a period where literally people for the first part of his career are still saying Trumpo is better than him. <laughs> Trumpo averaged 39. Right? <laughs> you know, there are all these little byplays and byplays? I don't know if I meant by place. There are all these little, you know, um, things that they went through in their careers that we've now long forgotten. And we look up 10,000 runs and average of 51. And, you know, we forget all the other stuff that has gone on. Um, and there really is a lot more to it um, in some cases. But anyway, great comments. Thanks. I think you all made up for the fact that Barrett's not here. If he's fit tomorrow, we'll certainly get him back on. We're absolutely smashing it with the videos at the moment. Cheyenne um, Khan has come on, obviously, and he's helping out massively. Although we might have to slow down because last time I saw uh, Muku uh, was in bed with the fever, so we might slow down a little bit. But we've got an absolute ton of content coming up for you at the moment. So uh, keep coming. If you only come for the lives on YouTube, please go and have a look at all the other content as well. There is plenty more out there. 
And, um, you know, support us any way you can. Like, subscribe, press the bell icon, Patreon, buy me a coffee. You can do my sports writing course as well. Uh, we, it's 50 US dollars or 60 US dollars. It's something like that. And you can do uh, sign up for it once and you can do it in your own pace anytime you want. Uh, but huge thanks to everyone. And I will see you again next time, which, as I said, could be like tomorrow morning. Thanks for listening to 99.94 Network Cricket every day. Remember to download our app or just search for your favorite team at 99.94, where you find podcasts on Google or YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, and there are many other extras available there as well. There is a link to the show notes. The show is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. Barrett Sundaresan is my co-host. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great production team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapayi and Maida Akam producing podcasts, and Makunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube account.